This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good afternoon to the UK. Good morning here from Rand's Washington DC office. I'm sitting here with Charlie Reese, who's our VP for International, and in Cambridge, we have Marco Hafner, who's a senior economist in Cambridge, and I'll just ask them a couple of questions before I open it up. Uh, maybe, Charlie, could you just start by telling us what the uh, study is about and why we undertook it? Yes, well, we re- we did a study in 2017 called After Brexit, which was an examination of all of the possible forms uh, that a post-Brexit uh, economic relationship between the U.S. and the EU could take, <clears throat> ranging from no deal or WTO rules trading basis all the way to a single market a solution or a customs union and so forth. And we appraised what we thought the economic um, outcomes would be for the U.K., the EU, and the U.S. As we looked at the uh, impending departure of uh, the U.K. from the EU in accordance with their final acceptance of the of the withdrawal agreement, we thought it might be useful to think about what happens after uh, departure in terms of the economics uh, of uh, of Brexit for the uh, for the UK. So this study called "The End of the Beginning" focuses on what would be the costs of economic uncertainty, in particular on trade and economic trade and investment flows between the the UK and the rest of the world uh, after. January 31, and that's and that's what we sought to uh, to do. We uh, there's also a chapter that uh, uh, very well summarizes all that we know and other studies on the economic impact of the uncertainty with re- respect to Brexit that took place between the referendum vote in 2016 and the end of 2019. Uh, who commissioned it? Uh, how was it paid for? Uh, this was a study uh, in uh, our series called Rand Investment in Research, which is basically self-funded uh, from Rand's own resources uh, generated by the work that we do for uh, our sponsors and uh, donors. And what what did we find? Well, we found uh, that uh, – the there is a substantial cost to uncertainty, uh, and that cost grows over time. We estimated uh, the uncertainty that comes from the lack of clarity about what the the permanent final arrangements will be between the UK and the EU. Uh, uh, that um, uh, is yet to be negotiated. In fact, the negotiations start at the end of February, the beginning of March, and the Prime Minister of the UK is uh, uh, is promising that they will conclude before the end of the transition period uh, in 2020. And so our estimates were that the uh, cost of that uncertainty alone uh, is likely to be uh, 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 about um, uh, 0.17 percentage points uh, uh, on GDP or uh, about 4.4 uh, 4 billion uh, pounds sterling. This, cal- means- this calendar year. That this calendar year, and that would grow over time if, if there, there, if the, uh, if there was no clarity. As companies hold off investments, companies don't participate in global value chains and and uh, for exports. Uh, we uh, we put that together using a, a, a general equilibrium model, uh, and it was based on the experience that we uh, we we had uh, saw from the 2016-2019 period. 
Marco, could you speak to the science? How did we come up with these numbers? Um, yeah, Jeff. Um, so, yeah, to produce this estimate, as Charlie said, review existing studies that are done by others on how the economy, UK economy, has performed since the Brexit referendum, uh, specifically looking in terms of uh, trade and foreign direct investment. Uh, related to what we call trade policy uncertainty, where, as Charlie said, the future trading relationship in terms of what are going to be the tariffs on certain um, goods, but also non-tariff barriers related to service trade. And we then use a, a macroeconomic model, which is very similar to what the UK government has used for its um, economic impact assessment of different uh, Brexit scenarios. And then we estimate the, the impact on, on UK GDP over, over the next years if those previous trends that we have observed since the Brexit referendum in terms of trade and, and FDI would persist. When I say 0.17 percentage points, that means, I think is an easier way to understand it, is if the UK economy would otherwise grow at 2% in 2020, 2% of GDP, uh, which is not a fantastic uh, world to fire uh, uh, growth rate, but it's not bad. It, the, the effects of this uncertainty alone would take it down to just over 1.8%. I'm happy to leave it there for the moment. Uh, would uh, Christina or Phil, would you like to jump in? Um, I would like to ask, um, based on your findings, um, would you say that the long transition play in the EU's hands since the longer it is, the bigger the impact on the British economy? Um well, there are – yes, you could say that that was a possible effect and that may be the way it's judged in Brussels. I think that it also though from the standpoint of the British may reinforce their desire to wrap this up quickly. So it's kind of hard to tell how it plays out in terms of pressures on the negotiations. But I think it is well worth keeping in mind that while – the withdrawal agreement is adopted uh, by both sides and, and is going to enter into force next week. Actually, not much changes. The, the trade barriers don't change. Uh, the, the transition agreement uh, maintains the way things have been, yet uh, the uncertainty alone will affect the British economy in particular. Is this a speculation that perhaps by December 2020, um, if we haven't agreed on everything, we might extend the transition period in um, various sectors. Do you think that would alleviate the uncertainty and somehow prevent some of the effects that um, you've um, predicted in your study? Well, the uncertainty that we're looking at is, uh, we think, is related to the fact that there isn't a permanent uh, picture. So from the standpoint of an exporter, they don't know what the rules of origin will be. They don't know what reliance they can put on imported components. Uh, and uh, a uh, a temporary and sectoral agreement that might be um, uh, adapted or adopted in in the in 
the summer or at least agreed to as a framework to be finished in the second half of the year doesn't really solve all those problems. Uh, it, it, as long as there isn't a permanent, uh, ratified, comprehensive, deep uh, free trade agreement of the sort that the two sides have agreed to in the political declaration, I don't th- I think that there will be continuing uncertainty. It Obviously, anything that makes it clear what happens on January 1, 2021 will reduce uncertainty. Hmm. There is an interesting idea in the report when you say that trade policy uncertainty de facto may have acted as a non-tariff barrier to trade and has led to lower UK exports overall. I was wondering whether you could expand on this idea. Yes. Uh, the the idea is that uh, uh, companies are looking at uh, investment propositions. Should I build a new factory? Should I uh, revise the uh, product line of this factory? Should I invest in a new services uh, offering? Uh, and uh, they uh, don't know what the conditions, the business arrangements that they will have in 2021 and thereafter are, and that serves as a non-tariff barrier in that it re- it increases the cost or at the risk of uh, of new business and and those kinds of assi- uh, those kinds of decisions. I do want to ask about the impact. Um, so in the U.S., the U.S. administration, um, you know, has, has sort of downplayed the effect of of tariffs and um, on the on the U.S. economy. Um, do you do you see that the the you know the U.K. government is sort of doing the same thing, or do you think that there is a kind of a, an implicit understanding that this you know these that will have an impact. I mean, what's the response then from the government? Uh, I will be in London next week and we'll get a better sense of what the British government reaction to this is. Uh, We are not actually talking about tariffs. We're talking about the uncertainty about future trade uh, arrangements, which are part tariffs. uh, But since both sides have agreed that they would uh, enter into a uh, free trade agreement that was at least the goal of it would be a tariff-free, quota-free regime – uh, it's not so much the tariffs that would be applied in 2021. It's the uncertainty about what the details are, what the conditions will be, what the rules are, and and in particular, as you know, the, uh, Brussels is looking for commitments from the UK about what they call a, a level playing field uh, conditionality, what the British um, uh, rules will be on competition policy, what the British rules will be on labor, uh, uh, treatment of labor, and, and, and other kinds of things. And so all of these things together are what is uh, is likely to weigh on decisions that affect uh, growth um, in the in the British economy. Um, yeah, I, I I think my question about tariffs is probably a little bit more nuanced. Um, so, the U.S. has threatened tariffs on Britain separately because of its digital tax um, plans. Mm-hmm. And it's just pulled back from that threat in regard to France, but there are, in fact, U.S. tariffs already in place against the EU and EU products, including um, U.K. products. So 
I mean, is is do tariffs play a role in this, or will that it will it in fact give Britain some advantage if they extract, you know, once they extract themselves from the um, the EU, will they actually sort of see a little bit of a benefit because they'll then not be affected by those tariffs anymore? Uh, well, the, if it, when Britain leaves the EU. Uh, it will have to uh, make direct arrangements with the U.S. Uh, for the uh, tariff uh, that would apply and other terms and conditions that would apply between trade between the U.S. and the and the U.K. Our study didn't really look at that. Our previous study uh, estimated the value of a U.S.-U.K. Uh, a free trade agreement uh, and we found that it was much more important for the UK than it was for the US. Um, the question of the tariffs that we have in place on the on the EU in retaliation for unfair trade practices as we would see them uh, uh, and those that we've threatened f- uh, with respect to the um, aircraft uh, dispute, that's kind of the normal um, uh, warp and woof of uh, trade policy in which uh, in order to try to deter uh, uh, bad practices uh, uh, from subsidies to dumping to all kinds of other things, countries either threaten or apply um, uh, tariffs. And uh, we uh, also have adapted, uh, uh, announced, uh, adopted, and then waived some tariffs in the steel sector because of supposed threats to U.S. national security. Let me say that that once the UK leaves the EU, it will uh, have to work out uh, details of its trade relationship directly with the US. Right now, as a member of the EU, uh, UK exports to the US are uh, treated as the the same as French or German exports to the US, both in respect to tariffs, retaliatory or otherwise, um, and and other terms and conditions, rules of origin, and, and, and regulatory things. Great. Thank you. Phil, did I hear you trying to get in earlier? Uh, this, is, this is Phil. Can I come in at this point? Please. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, and he covered a lot of ground. I just wanted to ask one thing. Obviously, your study looks at the costs of, of you know, delay, the cost of uncertainty from the whole process taking too long. But what occurs to me is that we've we've heard that it's, you know, for other sources, that it's possible to do a very quick, thin deal this year. Um, so that would end the uncertainty. But it might be a very, very sort of bad deal and a costly deal. And in fact, you know, a better deal in the long run might take longer. I was just wondering, if you, I mean, I know you may not have looked at this, but I was wondering if you can help me get my head around, you know, how negotiations negotiators should balance the the short-term uncertainty cost from taking more time to negotiate a deal and actually the potential long-term gains by agreeing a deal that's more beneficial to the UK economy, if that makes sense. 
No, it does make sense. And we, at the very end of our conclusions, we actually said that that is the the, the key challenge. I mean, how much do you go for a quick, skinny deal versus a longer term, um, uh, more comprehensive deal that may, in the end, be worth it? And that's a classic investment uh, policy uh, challenge. Uh, and I don't disagree with it. I, I don't. I don't think that that the mere fact that there are costs to uncertainty is not a reason. It, it, in and of itself for the UK or any country in this circumstance to, to, to race to a deal. Uh, but it, we thought it would be useful, uh, especially as people uh, are of the view that everything's been resolved uh, and, uh, and now Brexit will just kind of automatically happen uh, to clarify that there are these very, in a sense, much more important uh, this discussions and arrangements that need to be worked out. And for all of the months and possibly years that it takes to do that, there will be costs. Uh, it's, it's possible uh, to envisage. I've heard people talk about the idea that there might be a provisional deal. So you could do something, a, a skinny deal or a, a, a tariff-only deal uh, this summer that would be adopted uh, at the end of the year, but that it would be explicitly provisional uh, uh, until such time as uh, all of these other broader level tr- playing field and other kinds of things um, uh, can be worked out. And, and that's also an uh, a possibility. I think conceptually, uh, Phil, that, that that I've always been thinking about is that this is, in a sense, completely novel territory. This is really a disintegration agreement. Um, the, there has never, in the history of the post-war uh, trade system, there's never been a case of a country withdrawing from a, a comprehensive uh, trade arrangement as we have. And what you're actually negotiating about uh, are new barriers that you would put in place. How many new barriers? What kinds of new barriers? How will you deal with um, uh, a country that used that met all of your regulatory uh, requirements, uh, was a, a member in good standing, but now wants to leave and put things up? What rights do they have to put things up? What are the costs of those kinds of things? And those are the, those are um, uh, in the world of trade negotiations, we don't really have experience with that. And uh, so in some ways, uh, Brussels and London will be, uh, be working on uh, a, a completely novel approach. Yeah, thank you. I think it would be interesting to hear uh, Charlie's thoughts on whether um, there is um, whether any of the two approaches to the negotiation that we've had recently um, is better in terms of reducing and uh, reducing uncertainty. So we know that the UK government would prefer a salami approach to the negotiations, so kind of mini deals and tackling topics separately, whereas the EU would prefer a ravioli approach where everything is discussed all together and probably takes us longer. I don't know whether any of these two different approaches are better to reduce uncertainty. Um, Well, it would seem that uh, if all other things being equal, a ravioli approach would be would reduce uncertainty uh, much more than a than a salami approach. 
the uh, the the question uh, of sequencing of the negotiations and the sort of game theory of the negotiations was one that we also examined in our 2017 report. Uh, and uh, we uh, uh, said then that w- w- the UK needs to keep in mind that for the EU, the negotiations are not simply with the UK. For the EU, the uh, what they are interested in is demonstrating the viability and, and uh, vibrancy of uh, the European Union itself, and they uh, that is one reason that Michel Barnier uh, very early on and consistently talked about no cherry picking. Uh, they don't uh, aren't comfortable because of the unique uh, characteristics of the EU with uh, taking on bits and pieces. Uh, that said, over the history of uh, the European Union uh, and adaptations, uh, treaty changes, and other kinds of um, serious problems that they've undertaken, they have uh, historically uh, adopted a, uh, you know, in the the Monet method of doing bits and pieces uh, as they could get them done. So I don't know that it's uh, completely outside of the realm of possibility that they do as either Phil said a skinny deal or a provisional deal uh, and tackle the things one at a time. That's certainly going to be the the challenge for 2020 because there's very little time, as uh, as all of you have been reporting. Mm. Marco, did you want to weigh in on that at all? No, thanks. Okay. Uh, Andrea or Phil? Yeah, let me just throw one more quick question out there about uncertainty. Um, the uh, impact is obviously sort of on, on CapEx. Um, and and just investment in in, in general. But um, do you have any thoughts? And I am sorry, I only received the report this morning, so I haven't had a chance to read it through. But um, do you have any thoughts on how long it takes for the you know the sort of rubber band to go back in place after it's been stretched out? In other words, even when there is a deal, like does that sort of like you know, is there a lag time between deal and investment or is there uh, or, or does it sort of snap back immediately? Like as soon as the uncertainty is clear, people start, you know, you know, M&A picks up and, 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 and investment picks up again. Uh, I'm not I'm not a great expert on on that question. Maybe Marco has some observations. I think. Uh, wh- Go ahead, Marco. No, it's a good question. Um, I think from what we see empirically is that the moment this whole, you know, we've seen that from other kind of what we call trade ne- renegotiation periods between the U.S. and and Mexico when they, when you know, when, when certain kind of provisions and so on were, were under discussion or renegotiation, that as soon as the kind of uncertainty around this renegotiation period evades or, or evaporates, uh, usually kind of investments or kind of the, the general kind of investments start start flowing again. Um, that's what we see from, from kind of the empirical studies. Okay. Um, I'm just asking because we, um, there was a report out or an analysis, I should say, of trade data that showed that um, 
in the case of tariffs having been in place, um, things do not go back to normal because, you know, other um, arrangements have been made. In other words, people have found suppliers in other places to get around the tariffs. And I'm wondering if there's a similar kind of a lag effect with um, investment because if you're waiting and waiting and waiting and you need to expand and, you know, are you, are people choosing instead of investing in the UK to invest somewhere else? You know, we, we, we did see quite a lot of supply chain sort of movement um, as people were anticipating Brexit. So, you know, is it, is it, yeah. And basically that was the basis for that question. But it sounds like you don't see that. You think that it, it basically starts right right up again. Uh, it seems it seems to me, this is Charlie, it seems to me intuitive that uh, and we do know from other uh, from other uh, trade uh, uh, arrangements that that there is um, uh, displacement, that, that there is there is a trade diversion that happens. And uh, often new supplier arrangements get set up and that they are. Uh, they don't necessarily unwind automatically. Uh, businesses make long-term commitments or uh, medium-term commitments to each other. So uh, I think uh, – I don't know what the data show, but that uh, – I think you would often get that uh, from actual businessmen. I think, I think the, the UK in this case is probably a slightly special case because, you know, I think a lot of what we see – I mean, I think what I was speaking about was kind of more more general what you see between, you know, in, what we have seen in other renegotiation periods. But I think in the UK, it's a slightly different case because, you know, I think a lot of foreign direct investment has flown into the UK because of the, you know, access to the single market and potential, you know, other kind of attractive kind of reasons why you could do investment in the UK. If... There, the single market access might be cut or, or, you know, different kind of barriers build up. There might be a chance that in the longer term, those investments wouldn't flow into the UK anymore. And we have shown that into, in the previous study that there's a chance that in the long term, these investments might be diverted. So that's, I mean, that's, that also, again, depends a bit on where, where the kind of negotiations of the future relationship will land. Will this be a very close alignment? across different fields in terms of regulation and, and, and so on, or the further they are kind of disaligned, the, you know, the larger will be potentially this diversion effect. I'm sorry, could you repeat that last sentence? It was just difficult to hear you. So, so, sorry, I, mean, I, was, um, I think, as I said, like the, the, the close relationship is the, you know, the, the lower this level of, of potential diversion in investments or, or kind of, you know, FDI that would have been um, come to the UK if they wouldn't have left or, you know, wouldn't leave the European Union. Whereas if, if you know, the, the, the wider this gap is between, you know, access to single market or, or, or regulation and, and, and other kind of um, things, the, the, the bigger or potentially the, the, the aversion is. Great, thanks. You, uh, uh, we quoted in the study on page nineteen. Uh, there are some other studies uh, that uh, that estimated that uh, greenfield inward investment—that's sort of a, a whole new factory rather than a merger and acquisition—into uh, the UK in 2018 decreased 16 percent. 
And in 2019, outward greenfield investment by UK uh, companies uh, or UK investors uh, increased by 27%. That's That looks like um, uh, new investors holding off making investments in the UK and UK investors uh, positioning themselves for the possibility of change. This is 2018 as the uh, uh, and 2019 as the negotiations over the withdrawal agreement came to a close. Yeah, that's really helpful. And do you have an opinion on whether and what will happen to those flows? Well, uh, obviously, we don't know what kinds of final arrangements will be worked out. That's the uncertainty, in a sense. Uh, if the if the final arrangements between the UK and the EU are good uh, and as um, as barrier free as possible, although as I mentioned earlier, what we do know is that there will be more barriers than there are now. But if if there are as few as possible, then uh, the economics uh, should adjust with the lag time, as we've discussed, uh, over time. We, in our 2017 study, and I firmly believe now that that the uh, uh, the UK-EU and UK-US agreements are not equal in terms of economic effect. For the UK, the um, uh, the importance of a good agreement with the EU is, um, uh, is much higher. So it, it's much more important for London to work with Brussels than Washington. Washington uh, is a nice-to-have, uh, but it would not be – um, uh, comparable for the British economy uh, the, as um, a good uh, uh, continuation of its economic relationships across the channel. I'm inclined to leave it there unless, unless anyone has a last question. Um, obviously, you can uh, get in touch with Charlie or Marco uh, through Kat McShane, who's also on the call. Cat's email is cmcshane at rand.org. So, barring no last questions, I think we'll call it here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the Rand Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.